Welcome to episode 57 of Now We're Talking. I'm Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo, and this is a podcast about communication skills. So the last couple of, of episodes of the podcast, we've been talking about mostly about persuasion. Uh, and today I want to kind of pull some of those strands together to talk about what I think of as and what ancient Greek rhetoricians thought of as the central element of persuasion, and that's trust. So uh, ultimately, what you want is other people to trust you. And if they trust you, then they're likely to be persuaded by the position that you're advancing. So we need to think about trust as a very special and very important outcome of communicative practices. So again, to, to repeat, communication is not a matter of transmitting information. It's a process of producing effects on others. Trust is one of the most profound and important effects that we can produce through our communicative practices. So that's what we're going to talk about, how to produce trust. Uh, okay, so let's talk about ancient Greek for a little bit, ancient Greek rhetorical theory first. Uh, Aristotle and other ancient Greek rhetoricians had a word called ethos that they th thought was central to, to communication and to rhetorical practice. Ethos refers to basically the credibility and trustworthiness of the speaker. And it points to the fact that if you're to accept a person's claim, you're implying that you're able to trust the person making the claim. And we're always making judgments about who we trust and who we don't trust. Now, ethos in the ancient Greek can actually mean either character or habit. And those two ideas, character and habit, are related in, Greek, in, in ancient Greek because a person's habit habits help build or construct the person's character. So a person's character is nothing other than, than the habits they use every day. So a dishonest person habitually lies all the time. They engage in the habitual practice of lying. That's what makes their character dishonest. An honest person tells the truth all the time, and they make a habit out of telling the truth. So that sets up a challenge for anyone in a kind of leadership position. How does one gain the trust of others? We saw, so what one, I, I think the most elementary and profound and simplest answer to that question is that we produce trust when we act and communicate transparently. So if we reason in open and transparent ways, especially to produce kind of full arguments, then we're likely to produce trust as an outcome. Transparent processes of reason giving work uh, especially well when there's forms of mutual respect, especially between leaders and, and followers. Um, okay, so how does that work and why is transparency such a, a central communication practice for the produ production of trust? Well, think of it this way. Okay, um, I am a leader of a team, a group of people. And that team's been working for a while, and I notice that there's something a little bit, uh, there's a problem with the team, so I'm going to introduce a new policy for the teamwork. Uh, let's call it policy X for right now. 
And the, the goal of Policy X is to distribute the work of the team equitably. Because I've noticed that that work isn't being distributed equitably. Some people are being treated unfairly. So Policy X is supposed to bring about some degree of equity. And I'm in the position of leadership. I'm in the position of power in the group. So I, I can determine whether or not what the policies are. So I've made this, uh, I made this decision. Now, what do I do? How do I communicate the decision to my team? Well, I know that the best possible thing to do in order to gain trust is for me to articulate my reasons and my emotional predisposition in making the decision to implement the policy. So I've got policy X. Why do I want to implement policy X? Because I'm looking to make things more equitable. Uh, I've noticed lately that there is an inequitable distribution of labor and I'm trying to remedy that. I think this policy works for X, Y, and Z reasons. Now I can add the degree of transparency by articulating my concerns or my vulnerabilities or my fears or my anxieties around the implementation of the policy. So I can say something like, you know, I'm really worried some of you are not going to like this policy. I can even name the people in my team who might not be, who might be worried. I know Emily and James are unlikely or are likely to think that this is a really bad policy. And I think that they might have the following reasons for suggesting that. So I'm being totally transparent about my vulnerabilities or my concerns or my, my anxieties about the adoption of the policy, along with my reasons for, for making it. Now, if you're ever in a situation, and I'm in lots of these situations, where people in leadership positions in your organization are not transparent about their, about their reasons for doing something, odds are they're making a decision or engaging in an action from a position of insecurity or reactivity. They actually don't know what they're doing and feel insecure or ashamed or uncertain or anxious about it. And they think that the feelings of insecurity or anxiety or shame that they're feeling should be hidden from the people that they're trying to lead. Uh, but of course, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know certain things. So if you feel insecure about a policy, then you articulate or try to persuade others to adopt the policy. What's going to happen? Well, the feeling of insecurity and anxiety that you have will likely be contagious to those that are following you. They'll see, they'll, they'll be distrusting of the policy because they'll feel the anxiety that you feel around it. So people that are that lack transparency, that are opaque, are often opaque because of the insecurity they feel around their reasoning. Or the second option is that they don't have very good reasons for adopting the, the policy or advancing the position that they're advancing. People without good reasons hide the reasoning process from them. Of course, if you don't have good reasons and you're anxious and insecure, the you know you have to ask what effect that's gonna have. Well, a loss of respect, if there are no good reasons, uh, you'll be untrustworthy. Um, the feelings of anxiety and um, and insecurity are the opposites of trust, and those will be the things that, that are contagious. So the number one kind of piece of advice for anyone in a leadership position or anyone in a position to try to gain trust as an outcome of a communicative process is to be transparent. Greater degrees of transparency will evoke also greater degrees of transparency in return from, from the other people that are working with you. So if you're transparent, others will be transparent with you. And of course, if you're in a leadership position, making good decisions is dependent on you having access to all of the information that your other, the other members of your group have. So if you hide reasoning from them and then they hide reasoning from you, you're gonna be in a position of making really bad decisions. It's not, and then you'll also be, of course, untrustworthy. So transparency is a key ingredient for, for demonstrating trust and transparent communication 
It involves articulating the reasons and justifications behind a decision or behind a position that you're advocating and articulating the emotions that come along with the process of arriving at that decision or advocating for that position. Being clear and being authentic about both things at the same time is a process of transparency. And transparency results in respect, respect results in, in trustworthiness, and transparency begets further transparency, which improves the, the deliberative process or the decision-making process, which will ultimately lead to further degrees of trust in the per person in a position of leadership. Um, okay, so that kind of cycle of transparency is necessary to the, the generation or the development or the building of, of trust. Uh, what else can we say about trusts? Um, well, trust is also a product of relationships, established relationships. And uh, established relationships come sometimes from situated ethos, sometimes from invented ethos. So I want to talk about those two distinctions. Uh, uh, by the way, I forgot. Uh, if you're in the habit of being transparent, that's also a sign of good character, according to Aristotle, other ancient forms of rhetorical theory. So if you acquire the habit of transparency in your interactions with others, you will be trustworthy ultimately, and, and you'll have the character of someone who is honest, which really is the, the cornerstone of trustworthiness. Um, okay, so uh, I'm a professor in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Waterloo. Uh, we have a dean of the Faculty of Arts, and the dean has what's called situated ethos, and that situated ethos is based on his or her position within the institution. Most leaders find themselves in positions of having situated ethos, which is why we have to develop the concepts more fully, I think. Because situated ethos constructs a relationship between a leader and some others. If a person doesn't have situated ethos, then that person has to create an ethos through some specific strategy. That could include transparency, but it's more than that. Uh, it's a way of constructing oneself as a leader by suggesting ways of building relationships. Uh, so possibilities for inventing ethos include uh, sort of explicitly calling on what you've done in the past that that's worked well. Um, I do this when I remind my students of other great classes I've had or I taught in the past. You could point to personal things that you've done that are demonstrative of character traits. I do this sometimes when I retell the story of the time I saved an old woman from falling in the Shibuya Crossing intersection in Tokyo. Um, a person can also show they understand another person's point of view through a display of empathy or through the identification of similarities in their experiences or their beliefs. Sometimes I do this when I remind my students that I too was once an undergraduate student's, a student. People can also claim some kind of expertise or special knowledge obtained through careful study. I do this when I remind my kids all the time that I've read all the books that they read and many more. Uh, in, the, in those cases, ethos isn't automatic. It's an achievement of intentional communication practices. And they are strategic appeals to ethos that can construct specific kinds of relationships between a leader and others. So uh, it's important because without the appropriate ethos, a leader can't gain the trust of others. Okay, so you either have to rely on your situated ethos, and if you don't have situated ethos, then you need to rely on uh, invented ethos in order to develop trust. Okay, so... Um, this is all a complicated way of saying that uh, from your position or, or your own position as a person communicates just as much as one's words communicate because that position will produce important effects on others. Uh, so let me 
sort of expand on that a little bit. Um, if I ever have to talk to the police or the law, uh, I ask them to call me doctor. That's because my hope is that my position as a professor will produce an effect on the police officer. I'm calling attention to my positionality in hopes that it'll be impactful. In other ways, when I refer to my other classes that have gone well, or I tell my kids I've read, read lots of books, I'm referring to my habits that have given me the position that I have. Um, when I was at Concordia, the Dean of Engineering and Computer Science had a corner office in this nice new shiny building. But in order to get to his office, you had to ascend a, a kind of huge open staircase from the first floor to the second floor. And if anybody's on the engineering building and in the Guy Metro uh, in Montreal, the, stair it's, you, the staircase is unmistakable. And it ends at the main reception for his audience. And then you had to be buzzed in through the security door by the receptionist. And after you buzzed in, you had to walk down this long, quiet hall. And it felt like you were really arriving at someplace important. I think that was the dean attempting to magnify his situatedness, the positionality that he had, and the effect of that positionality. He was actually involved in the architecture of the architectural design of the building, so it's not such a weird choice. Uh, you know, people always talk about you know top corner offices and you know penthouses, etc. The history of the American presidency is actually filled with anecdotes about different presidents using the Oval Office and the other trappings of their position to influence negotiations or conversations. We don't have to be a president or a dean, though, to realize or use the impact that our positions have on others. In smaller, more local leadership positions, people will always pay careful attention to everything that a person with a particular position does or says. So now that I'm chair of my department, I notice that people have begun talking with me and treating me slightly differently than they did before. That's because they're responding to my positionality and not to me. The question then is, how can you use your positionality to persuade others and build trust? That's a matter of using one, using the authority of one's position to add weight and impact to a particular claim or suggestion by highlighting or demonstrating that positionality. Okay, so that's kind of number two about building trust. Number one is be transparent. Number two is refer to your positionality or recognize the authority that is issues from your positionality and understand how that positionality functions to produce effects on others. Okay, number three, a good leader is also able to explicitly and implicitly appeal to his or her trustworthiness, good sense, good judgment, good intentions, etc. Uh, in fact, Aristotle talks about good sense, good judgment, and good intentions. And he, in, in his treatise on rhetoric, good sense refers to a, a person's knowledge or expertise within a set of circumstances. Good judgment is a person's record of making good decisions, and good intentions uh, refer to goodwill or the extent to which a person has the best interests of others in mind. So we might subtly remind others of our good sense, good judgment, and good intentions in a variety of different ways. Story is a kind of primary one, but in any case, we're trying to add authority to some claim by virtue of the habits we display toward others. We're always already displaying our sense, our judgment, and our intentions to others when we do uh, whether we do that strategically or not. So we're always being evaluated by these criteria by others, especially if we occupy a position of leadership. This means that the more our communicative habits embody these qualities and the more others will trust us. For example, if I demonstrate my ex expertise in a particular subject matter and the hard work I put in degrade student papers, then students are likely to trust that the mark they receive on a paper is accurate. The added feature of habits that display these characteristics comes from the influence of modeling. 
So modeling is also an important component of communication. And here I don't mean posing for pictures on glossy magazines. Modeling is like mirroring in that one party begins to adopt the communication habits or practices of another. It's why transparency begets transparency as secrecy begets secrecy. Um, people in positions of leadership are, are likely to be modeled by others. This means that the habits with which they engage others are likely to be adopted by people paying attention to that person in a position of leadership. So a leader, if a leader wants to, to share his or her reasoning with others, be transparent, or set up a transparent process for decision-making, then it's likely the case that other people will do the same when they're in different positions that require reasoning and decision-making. The reason, therefore, that one ought to display habits of good sense, good judgment, and good attentions is that others are likely to imitate those habits. That's both an explicit and implicit process. So my department recently tried to change, or it did change its name. We were the Department of Drama and Speech Communication. We're now the Department of Communication Arts. That involved this really long process of consultation. It ended with a vote at this big decision-making body for our faculty. And then after that vote, vote um, I went out for some beers with my colleagues. In describing the process that led to the vote, I tried to recount how I went about building consensus before the vote. I wanted to show my colleagues what communicative habits I used so that they saw my good sense and goodwill. I also knew that by recounting these habits, my colleagues that were with me are more likely to use those same habits when they're in a similar situation later on. That's why it's so important to demonstrate one's good sense, goodwill, and good judgment. People will trust others that demonstrate these characteristics, and they'll often imitate those same habits. And that's when the power of trust becomes this kind of relational glue between people. So it's both a matter of getting others to trust you through your use of positionality and appeals to good sense and goodwill and good judgment, but it's also the likelihood that your habits will become other people's habits through modeling that will ensure that the relationship is a trusting relationship. So here's the three central things we can do to kind of produce trust as an effect. One, we can be transparent about our reasons and our feelings. We can always choose transparency, uh, and transparency will build trust. Two, we can think about and refer to and structure messages that refer back to our positionality. So oftentimes we have situated ethos, even if we don't, we have to use our positionality, be aware of it, and refer to it in order to gain trust. Three, we can demonstrate good sense, goodwill, um, and good judgment, or at least refer back to our habits of good sense, goodwill, and good judgment to make sure those habits are resources for communicative practices. And if we display those habits, those habits are likely to be um, mirrored or modeled by others that are around us. And if they are mirrored or modeled by others around us, that will be a key ingredient in building relationships of trust. Uh, so those are the three best communication, communicative means by which trust is an outcome of a communication interaction or a communication process. Um, we've known collectively, I'd say Western culture has been aware of how ethos controls the process of persuasion. Aristotle says this in his book, The Rhetoric. He says ethos is the controlling feature of the process of persuasion. Uh, because it will determine the likelihood that someone will believe or will act according to the thing that you want them to believe or to act on. Uh, and that's because ethos is the, the, the 
ingredient or the mode of proof that manufacturers trust. So we're only persuaded by people that we trust. Aristotle also meant that when we make decisions about what to say to people, so Aristotle talked about the rhetorical triangle, ethos, pathos, and logos, and ethos was on top, and pathos and logos were secondary. Logos were appeals to reason, pathos were appeals to the frame of mind of the audience or the emotions of the audience. Um, the reason ethos controls pathos and logos is that our choice of what reasons to share with an audience or our choice of how to appeal to emotions reveals something about our character as a person. It reveals our communication habits and our communication habits lead audiences to believe in us as trustworthy or untrustworthy figures. So uh, you're building every time, this is the, one of the more complicated episodes because it's not an isolated communication practice we're talking about here. You build trust over time through habitual communication practices. Those habitual communication practices have to have the characteristics of transparency, of an awareness of and reference to positionality, and of good sense, good judgment, and goodwill. They have to habitually appeal to good sense, good judgment, and goodwill and show those things. If you do all three of those together, you're going to be a trustworthy person and you're going to be much, much more persuasive. If you lack transparency, if you ignore positionality, and if you do not demonstrate good sense, goodwill, good judgment, then you're not going to be going to be trusted. And in fact, you're likely to lead to people modeling kind of dishonesty, insecurity, uh, that sort of thing. I've never understood, I, I, I get so frustrated with people in positions of leadership that lack transparency, that don't want to articulate their reasons. And if they don't know what reasons they're, they're using to, to do something, then they're making a bad decision, and it's obviously a bad decision. If they're intentionally hiding their reasons for making a judgment, then you know they're going to have negative effects on audiences who are not going to trust them. They're going to be deemed untrustworthy figures from that point on. Um, okay, so that's how you manufacture trust, and that's why trust is so important for persuasion. Uh, we still have a few more things to talk about with persuasion, which I'll take up in the in the next couple of episodes, including making fine distinctions, which is important to persuasion. But that's it for this episode. Uh, hopefully everyone will be back for episode 58 shortly. Thanks. Bye.